Good morning. Good morning. Only reason why I knew that question was because that's what I was reading and was looking at this morning in the breaking of bread. So it's Second uh, Timothy chapter one verse twelve. So not that I'm quick on the draw. I'm usually slow. Um, if you were to, or if someone was to come up to you and ask you about what church you attend, or to come visit our assembly here, one of my experiences is that I've come across is that one of the first things they'll ask you is, well, who's your pastor? Well, Jesus Christ is our pastor. Oh, no, no, yeah, 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 he's all of our pastor, but who's your, who's your, who's the man that, 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 that is the pastor of your church? Well, we don't have one in the sense of one-man minister, so we, we make a distinction between that we have no clergy, laity. Well, who oversees the, the, the body of believers there? Who, who's in charge? Oh, well, the scriptures lay out a governing body of elders, plurality of elders. And then as they come and visit and they step forward into the breaking of bread, they would say, well, who organized this meeting? The Holy Spirit. Well, who hit up the men to share? The Holy Spirit did. And they would say, well, how often do you break bread? Once a week. And if you, if you get what I'm kind of getting at a little bit, and what we're going to talk about this morning is New Testament assembly distinctions, we'd say, or New Testament assembly principles that we believe and we find in the New Testament that as the, the, the apostolic apostles founded the church and the way in which they practice becomes our principle in which we apply today. So, in an essence to why we break bread every Sunday on the first day of the week is because the scriptures lay it out that way. And um, why we don't have a, a, a one-man minister, a, a pastor, a paid clergy laity is because we don't see that in the New Testament. It's not found. So these are some of the distinctions that we come across, and, and this is what we're going to look at a little bit this morning, is we're going to look at a little more historical perspective of the church, and then tonight, if you can come back, we'll get into more, a little more of the meat and potatoes, and we're not going to sit down on any particular subject, but to kind of lay out an overview of what assembly distinctions are, and let me rephrase this, I don't mean assembly and Plymouth Brethren distinctions, but New Testament assembly principles, because that's what we hold to. We're not interested in the traditions of men but the traditions in which the apostles have laid forth in which Paul would declare the commandments in which he has received from the Lord himself. First thing I want to say is why the worst distinctions is because when we go into Christendom, we see the various, various ways in which churches meet. There, there's a wide uh, selection of churches you can go to that from all the way to where ministers will come up with a robe on and so forth to where you just have a simple... Uh, one-man ministry of a pastor, or there's all different types. So we're just drawing a distinction in which we practice. The other thing is, is that I don't wish to in any way condemn other churches, to exalt ourselves above other churches, to think that we have the right way and that we are the only way and, and that, that we are the true believers and the Baptist church down the street is, is not true believers. That's not my intentions. It's not what I believe and that's not what we're trying to teach. As a local body here, we want to stay as close to the scriptures as possible. 
We believe in the New Testament church in which God has laid forth forward towards us a pattern in which he has given us instructions on how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to meet here, what the New Testament assembly church government is supposed to be like. And we don't see any allowance to deviate from this uh, pattern in which we've been given in the New Testament church. Now, there is areas of, of liberty and so forth that, that we have, that we do go about, but we, we're going to discuss this stuff maybe a little later if we have time. You know, one of the things when it comes to the, the doctrines in the Bible, when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, you see uh, uh, many churches are very adamant and we're straightforward on what we believe. All of a sudden you come to the doctrine of the church, or, or that theologians would call ecclesiology, the study of the church, and they begin to waver. They begin to, uh, um, well, this is your particular view, this is my view, we have liberties, we don't have to follow the, the normative pattern of the New Testament, we, we can, we can ad-lib here, we can adjust here a little bit. And what's grown today, and what we're going to look at, is this is only just a... a, a relapse of history in which we have developed within the church today. If you were to go into Christendom, and what I mean by Christendom is this is the professing realm of, of, of Christianity, is that you see this professional church idea that has come about. Where you basically, the attendees come, you put the money in the basket, you pay a full-time staff, you would have full-time worship leaders up here that, that do all the music, Full-time ministry for everything from a, a, a full-on staff to a, a secretarial staff to whatever it might be. Um, youth pastors, the, the whole uh, gamut of things. May the Lord bless them. But in our conviction of the scriptures and what we look at, we actually believe that's crippling in the church. We believe that was not the intent of the New Testament church in which the Lord has designed it. Because what it ends up doing is the Christian's life is you have been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. And you are called to come and exercise that gift. And this body is a living organism in which all members come together and build one another up. And you flourish and you mature in the fullness of Christ. And Christ is the head of the body. So we take our directions and our orders and everything from him. Now, in, in, in a literal sense, is we believe this and we want to practice this. What that means is that, like, for instance, you have the elders are overseeing the assembly. It's not the elders come together and we say, well, I'm, I'm the smartest one here. I got the greatest ideas and let's go ahead and implement this because I think this is going to be a great idea and really flourish. And I, I'm the king of marketing. I'm the king of this or whatever else. It's actually on the contrary. We want to come together and lay aside all of our pride, all of our thoughts, all of our wisdom and knowledge, and take direction directly from the Lord himself. And so you might say the elders are a discerning body, that we are simply mediators that discern the will of the Lord and want to implement it within the assembly. It's a totally different mindset from uh, the world and business and everything else, from the president and, and on down. So... I know as the elders here, we, we take that very serious. And when we don't have direction from the Lord, we'll wait. And we'll seek the Lord and we'll pray about it. The church was established and built by Christ. Christ declared that he will build his church 
and the gate, gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So if we believe this, and he is the head of the church, and he is our, and we are the body, we are to take direction, we want to find out what the New Testament church did and how they followed after him. And to give us an example of, of a similar analogy that has been given in Scripture is we are the Old Testament tabernacle and that we are the church today. And it's been uh, described in 1 Corinthians that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a holy place. Now, let me rephrase that. Not place in the sense of building, but place in the sense of people. The church is holy. And there's a distinguishing aspect of this, is that in the Old Testament, there was a place that was holy, and that place was a tabernacle. That place was the holy place and the most holy place, in which only the priest can go in there and minister. Only the high priest can go in once a year into the most holy place. And see, when God built that, that tabernacle in the Old Testament, he gave very specific instructions on how to build this from the colors to the fabric to the wood to use to gold, because everything represented something. And in the end of the day, God received all the glory for that tabernacle. We believe the same thing of the church today, that when the Lord designed and organized this church, is that every aspect of it, he is to receive the glory of it. And whenever I try to come in with my own wisdom, my own insight, my own uh, whatever you might say, I detract from the glory of God, and I cripple the body of Christ. You see, God has designed the church perfectly to flourish and to function, aside from the biggest, um, my mind went blank at thinking of the word, but the, the biggest negative part of the church is not the design, but the people. So you think of a, a marriage. If you were to look at marriage today, and you looked at all the stats of marriage, and again, the scriptures combined uh, include marriage in, in, in the same aspect as Christ loves the church, is that if you looked at the stats of marriage, you'd say marriage is an absolute failure. Look at the divorce rate. Look at the separation rate. Is the design of marriage the fault, or is it the people that are getting married the fault? You have two sinners coming together. You have two sinners that when they don't put Christ first in their marriage, when they don't seek after each other's own needs and they serve themselves, they end up with divorce and separation in their selfishness. So the same thing within the New Testament church and the style in which it's been designed and given and passed down from the apostolic days to our days today is it's a perfectly designed um, assembly but the fault within it is the people. And at times it's because we can't get along because we want to fight, because we want to exalt myself over someone else. I want to put my own needs, my own thoughts, my own wisdom above everyone else, and we end up with divisions and so forth. So the Lord has established a church. He's laid us down direction, which we'll look at eventually, probably tonight, but we don't have the authority to change it. What are your convictions? What do you believe today? Do you believe in New Testament church truth? Or have we compromised? Have we fallen away? You know, certain aspects that we would call New Testament assembly distinctions was somewhat practiced by all the uh, many churches years ago. 
You walk into our assembly and you see head coverings. We believe in um, the headship within the local church. And men are to be uncovered and women are to be covered. And, there's a, and that's 1 Corinthians 11. From my understanding, I wasn't born until 1972, but if you were to go into the 40s, the 30s, 19, the majority of the churches covered their heads um, in the sense of the women, and the men did not cover their heads. This was a widely practiced thing until of late with the women's liberation movement in which they then, with their uh, man's idea, is they have thrown out the head coverings and so forth and, and no longer make that, that headship distinction in which the Lord makes in 1 Corinthians 11. So do we believe it? And is it something that is your convictions that you are um, willing to live by and sacrifice for? You know, the, and the reason I say that is, I'll be quite honest with you, it would be a lot easier just to come on Sunday, throw my money in the basket and go home. It's a lot, and have a professional do it. I work 40 plus hours a week, and as well as a lot of the other men here, um, and women with raising children and everything else. And then the demand of all these hours during the week, and then we got to come and present a message and speak and so forth. It's a, it's a lot of hard work. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't exchange it for anything. I have a Bachelor of Science in Biblical Studies degree. I could actually go become a pastor at some church. I could go take the easy life. But instead, because of my convictions that I believe in the way in which the Lord has established the church and the principle and practice to his glory, I go work for LAPD and I go deal with the homeless and the transients. And as I experienced a few weeks ago, a crazy man in the backseat of my police car banging his head on the back window until his head split open. And we have other men here that do the same, that work all throughout the week, and then they prepare messages, and they come, and it's hard work. But this is where we grow in the Lord, is sacrificing for him, living for him, and you, you experience the power of God and the strength to keep going on. It's an amazing experience that you get to live out in the New Testament church. And to pour ourselves, our lives into it as well. Sunday morning we come. As men, we are responsible to come to the Lord's Supper prepared. Prepared for worship. Prepared to share. Prepared to focus our minds on the Lord. You see, what we believe, and we're going to get into this, is the priesthood of all believers. That just like in the Old Testament, you had priests that had their duties in which they had to do. You come to the New Testament, and we're all priests. We all have a responsibility to come to the household of God and to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to minister to the heart of God because we are holy priesthood. And then in Peter, he goes on to say, we're a royal priesthood, that we go forth and represent the king and we represent God to all the communities and the worlds around us. This is not only a right we have, but a privilege, tremendous privilege. And by no mean do I, need, do I mean to separate the men from the women in the breaking of bread is the women have the same responsibility to bring their, their spiritual offerings, their spiritual sacrifices before the Lord in the breaking of bread and to offer them up in silence and to come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father who sits here and looks upon this meeting 
in the picture you get in the New Testament is like a burning sacrifice as the smoke ascends and the Father breathes that, that, that offering in. It's a sweet-smelling Savior to the nostrils of the Father. He loves everything that, that goes on and goes forth. And it's not just a breaking of bread, but it, it's spiritual sacrifice that we continue to go out and sacrifice and live for the, God, for the Lord, as we see in uh, Romans chapter 12. It doesn't just stop in the breaking of bread, but it goes on. And, and we are supposed to be alive and living for the Lord. And being separated out to him and letting the Holy Spirit govern and guide our lives. Turn with me over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, and um, my main message this morning, and what I, I'm trying to uh, emphasize, is to be committed to the things of Scripture and to live it out on a daily practice. And if Satan had his way, he would come in and he would deceive us. He, he would change our understanding of Christ. He would, he would complicate things. He would muddy the water so that we're all confused and we don't know what to do. Look at uh, verse 3 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I fear, Paul says, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And the phrase there I want to emphasize is, is the simplicity that is in Christ. This word simplicity means single-mindedness. It's the ideal of being devoted to Christ, both without pretense and without hypocrisy. And it's single-mindedness that you are devoted and dedicated to the person of Christ without uh, distractions from the outside, but carrying out the will of the Lord in our lives and being committed to him. But part of this simplicity that we have in Christ is simpleness. You know, the church is not complex. Christianity is not complex. It's deep, but the Lord's made it very simple in which to live. And the thing is, is that we have in Christ is that a lot of times, and William McDonald said this, he said, when you see the apostles go out, they establish churches. Today, when men go out, we establish organizations. We have muddied the water. The, the, the New Testament church is so simple and so perfect that you could take this pattern, this principle that the, 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 the um, apostles laid down and they established the New Testament, you could put it anywhere. It, it's a, when you really look at the design of it, it's absolutely beautiful. You can take it here in the heart of Los Angeles and apply it. You can take it anywhere, anywhere around our country. You can have it in the home. You could have it wherever it might be. You can go under the, the jungles of, of uh, Africa, Peru, you name it. The simplicity of it is so tremendously brilliant and yet powerful, and yet from the outside, the enemy trying to cut off the, the, the New Testament church from its life source, you can't because of the autonomy of the local church, but it's independent. It's the Lord Jesus himself Governing that body, the Holy Spirit empowering men and women to live for him. You see, if you have a denominational headquarters, it's very easy to bring in corruption, to bring in false doctrine. Go to the headquarters. And then that all trickles down to all the things. Or if you go and take out that headquarters, the rest of the body doesn't 
know what to do. But the beauty of the New Testament church is each church is planted independently and their sole authority is the word of God and they're able to function and to flourish and to go forward. And the local governing body of elders are able to discern from the, the, the Lord himself and to be able to implement it and oversee the body of Christ. It, it's absolutely tremendous design, yet simple. The church is about you and I. It's not about this building. It's not about maintaining a, a, a payroll. It's about me pouring my life into you and you pouring your life into me. And the only way I do that is because the Holy Spirit gives me the gift and the power to do it and the love for each other. And you see, once you lose that, the church begins to crumble when you lose love for one another. And this is of utmost importance. Church is brilliant in the way it was designed, and let us hold to that. Let us not deviate from it. One of the main things in which uh, you'll find today is, uh, and what I've talked about, is, is the difference in opinion is we believe that as the New Testament, I've already mentioned it, as the, the apostles and the New Testament church established this pattern. So you see in Acts chapter 2, they begin to meet daily. They were involved in one another's lives, and as they, gone on, they, they go on, uh, when you get further on Acts, they meet on the first day of the week, and they establish the meetings and so forth. We believe in the normative pattern, but there's those that don't believe in that. They believe in a flexible pattern. They believe that they lack evidence and deny scriptural pattern. And that's one thing we're going to seek to establish later on that we seek to emulate. So just to get your mind wrapped around a little bit of this, and the reason why I bring this up is because you're going to see, hopefully, Lord willing, we're going to go into church history, and we're going to see how the Lord established this church and how the church has deviated from the pattern. The Lord tries to bring the church out of it. The church doesn't come far enough out of it. Then the Lord grabs the church and brings it out even farther. And then we'll come to today and where we're, we're truly at. Approximately in the, the 1500s, there was a man by the name of Martin Luther, and I know most of you know who Martin Luther is. And as some of the guys at work, if I mentioned Martin Luther, they would uh, they think I'm talking about Martin Luther King. And it's like, no, I'm talking about uh, Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk. monk. He was a, a priest and a professor of theology in Germany. And as Martin Luther continued, and he um, was involved in the church, he, he began to see the corruption. He began to see the differences of what the the Word of God taught versus the Catholic Church. Now, Martin Luther was very dedicated to the Catholic Church. He was very committed to it. He loved the Lord. He loved the Scriptures. And it wasn't that his intentions at all of breaking away from the Catholic Church, but to challenge it and what he saw and what he believed. But truly what we see is the Lord began to use Martin Luther to draw him out of this corruption and into the truth of the Word of God. Now let me say this, as I say church history, we're looking at the main thread of church history. There's always individuals that are on the side that practice New Testament church principles that believe in a lot of stuff that we can find writings on, but we're looking at the main thread of where the, the, the um, Christendom has gone. And what I've done is I pulled an article up that was written by Christianity Today because I don't want to use my words to describe Martin Luther's history. I want you to hear it for yourself and to see how 
The church has gone the way of the professional, the clergy laity distinction, the people sit in the pews, they don't even have a Bible. You see, the Catholic Church during this time did not believe that you can translate the Bible into their language into English, more or less, you couldn't understand it. Martin Luther is going to challenge this, but um, we're, we're going to see how, I believe, the church came out of that Catholic Church, but it didn't come out far enough until later on in the 1800s. So, what it says is, in the 16th century, the world was divided about Martin Luther. One Catholic thought Martin Luther was a demon in the appearance of a man. Another, who first questioned Luther's theology, later declared, he alone is right. It all, it all started on uh, All Saints' Eve in 1517, when Luther publicly objected to the way preacher Johann Tetzel was selling indulgences. These were documents prepared by the church and brought to individuals either for themselves or on behalf of the dead that would release them from the punishment due to their sins. As Tetzel preached, once the coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. This is a common thing that they would go and teach because basically they believed in purgatory. So your loved one goes to purgatory because they don't believe in the, in the finished work of Christ, that, that the blood of Christ uh, pays for all your sins. It's a partial payment, and then you've got to pay for the other bit. So you go to purgatory to finish off that payment, and as you're suffering there. What they believed is that if you go and you give money to the church, then that gets that soul, that loved one, out of purgatory earlier. Otherwise, they've got to stay in there to pay whatever time frame it is. So the common phrase in this day was, once the coin into the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory heavenward springs. And these individuals, as they love their loved ones, they don't want to think of them as suffering as they would throw the, the money into the, the baskets there. So Luther questioned the church trafficking in indulgences and called for a public debate of the 95 Thesis he had written. Instead of his 95 Thesis, oh wait, instead his 95 Thesis spread across Germany as a call to reform. And the issue quickly became not indulgence, but the authority of the church. And listen to this. Did the Pope have the right to issue indulgences? Now, one thing I want to talk to you a little bit about is that it, when it comes to, uh, I, I believe, witnessing to Catholics, and we have like our brother Justin who came out of the Catholic Church, and when I'm at work, one of the, 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 the big questions I get asked, especially those that are Catholics, is what is the difference between Catholics and Christians? It's a common question. And instead of saying, I believe this, and we can point to the Scripture, a lot of times what I do is, Church history. This is where Protestants split off from Catholicism. But Martin Luther, through this, and we're going to find out, he very uh, specifically called out the Catholic Church in certain things. And when you bring this up, and I lay it out to Catholic friends, I think it's helpful um, to, let, to uh, give them the understanding of the difference between Catholicism and Christianity. So as Martin Luther goes and, and he's going to question this, uh, the Catholic Church, he, he presents this 95 thesis. Well, it didn't go the way that he wanted to. He wanted a public debate. He wanted to be able to go in there and say, look, we've got to reexamine the scriptures. Let's look at this. The Catholic Church didn't uh, look at it as that. But one of the things to throw in the back of your mind, did the Pope have the right to issue indulgences? Events quickly accelerated. At a public debate, and if I pronounce this wrong, forgive me, but... Leipzig, in 1519, when Luther declared that a simple layman armed with the scriptures was superior to both the Pope 
and councils without them, he was threatened with excommunication. Now listen to this, and I want you to go back, and I want you to think about the priesthood of believers. I want you to think about the Lord drawing uh, not only out of this Catholic church, not only out of this, this uh, professionalism, this clergy to distinction, but he wants to draw men unto himself. And the Lord begins to reveal to Martin Luther, and this is a quote from Martin Luther, a simple layman armed with the scriptures was superior to both the Pope and councils without them. Layman is superior. This is foreign to their thought. But this is what we believe, is that the layman, that you, I, are superior to anyone. There is no clergy laity distinction. There is no, no titles that we give man within the church. But that we are all equal, and we all have the Holy Spirit. We all have the ability to interpret the word of God as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. So Martin Luther began to see this and declare it. Luther replied to the threat with his three most important treaties. The address to the Christian nobility, the Babylonian captivity of the church, and on the freedom of a Christian. In the first, he argued that all Christians were priests. And he urged rulers to take up the cause of church reform. In the second, he reduced the seven sacraments to two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the third, he told Christians that they were free from the law, especially church laws, but bound in love to their neighbors. One of the things that caught Martin Luther's attention in which he, he really read and, and indulged in was the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. These captivated him and, and the differences and the ideal of righteousness, that you are righteous right now, that the just, the righteous shall live by faith. He couldn't reconcile with his current position in, in, in teaching of theology and on the scriptures. In 1520, the Pope had had enough, and on June 15, issued an ultimatum threatening Luther with excommunication. On December 10, 1520, Luther, was publicly Luther publicly burned the letter. In January 1521, Martin Luther was officially excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. In March uh, 1521, Luther was summoned before the Diet of Worms, a general assembly of secular authorities. Again, Luther refused to recant his statements, demanding he be shown from Scripture that would refute his position. There was none. On May 8, 1521, the council released the Edict of Worms, banning Luther's writings and declaring him a convicted heretic. This made, a con <clears throat> this made him a condemned and wanted man. Friends helped him hide out, out at the Warburg Castle. While in seclusion, he translated the New Testament into the German language to give ordinary people the opportunity to read God's word. In 1521, he was called to an assembly at Worms, Germany, to appear before Charles V, the Holy Emperor of Rome, Roman Emperor. Luther arrived prepared for debate, but he quickly discovered he was on trial, which he asked to recant his views. Luther replied, unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear, and distinct grounds of reason, then I cannot and will not recant because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Then he added, here I stand, I can do other, no other. God help me, amen. Over the next years, Luther entered into more debates, more disputes, and many which divided friends and enemies. It has been said that in most libraries, books by, the, books by and about Martin Luther occupy more shelves than those concerned with any other figure except Jesus of Nazareth. Though difficult to verify, one can understand why it is likely to be true. Now, we're not here to praise Martin Luther. We're not here to study Martin Luther. 
but to see the working of God in which he began to pull Martin Luther. And from that point forward, you have reformed um, theology, you can say, a reformed movement that, that has sprung forward out of them. You have uh, um, different men such as John Calvin, other ones that have risen up since then. And they've taken it and they've gone forward. And you can find churches today by the denomination of Lutheran churches and, and so forth. God started to work there. One of the five things that, that uh, Martin Luther established that carried on, that the reformers continued to teach on and to go forward, and that we believe, and that you can share with your uh, Catholic friends, that is the distinctions between the Catholic Church and, and, um, and Christianity. The first one is solo scriptura, which is scripture alone. Martin Luther believed by the, the word of God alone we get our direct authority. Not The Catholic Church believes in the, the word of God and the Pope, and the Pope is... Um, the vicar of Christ in which he can declare the word of God. Sola fide, which is by faith alone. It's not by works for salvation. It's only by faith. And Martin Luther uh, um, established that and understood that. By grace alone. By Christ alone. And to the glory of God alone. Martin Luther established these five simple points in which we to this day do hold and appreciate where did Martin Luther screw up? Where did he not carry out? Where did he leave? What did he carry over from the, the, the Catholic Church into uh, the Protestant movement? Well, he didn't want to break away from them. He just wanted reform. So he brought a lot of their traditions, a lot of their uh, teachings, a lot of their stuff, such as he kept the clergy laity distinctions. Although he saw the priesthood of believers, he didn't draw that out to the utmost to empower the laymen to be the ministers within the local meeting. But they continued on with that clergy, laity, priest, pastor distinction. He also kept transubstantiation and communion, which they believe the priest actually goes up there and turns the, the, the communion bread and wine into the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you partake of that, that is the same as partaking in salvation and adds to your salvation. As well as many other church traditions in which uh, he carried over. So in the 1800s, what took place? There was another man by the name of John Nelson Darby, which most, most of you know who he is. And as, although Luther established this stuff and he, he began to separate out from the, 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 the mainstream of Christendom and, and the Protestant movement, he didn't come out far enough. He didn't come out to the Lord himself. He, he, he maintained and held on to a lot of these uh, church traditions. He had a man by the uh, name of John Nelson Darby who was an attorney, but he loved to help the poor, and he became an Anglican priest within the Church of England. But like uh, Martin Luther, Darby began to see the corruption within the church. He began to see the, the distinctions between the practice of the New Testament church and, uh, uh, and the practice of the, the current church, and the clergy-laity distinctions, the, the uh, apostasy or abandonment from the scriptures. And Darby was a highly intelligent man, and he began to study, and he began to search the scriptures. One Christian historian writes this of, uh, of John Nelson Darby and what his view was. He says, the church is in ruins, wrote John Darby. Then a successful Angl Anglican priest in Ireland, 
echoing the lamentations of Protestant reformers three centuries earlier, he believed that the Church of England had lost any notion of salvation by grace and that it had forsaken biblical ideas of what church should be. For Darby, it was a time to start afresh with a new church and prepare for Jesus, the imminent second coming. What resulted from Darby's departure was a new way of viewing the church and history that still pervades much of evangelical Christian thought. Darby's thoughts was the Christian is directed to turn away from evil and to turn towards the scriptures. You see, Darby saw the power of the New Testament church. He saw the way and the simplicity in which they met. And Darby ended up eventually taking, abandoning the, the Anglican church and began to meet with a group of believers in a home in simplicity around the Lord's uh, emblems. They begin to break bread and they begin to practice the priesthood of believers. They begin to show themselves that they don't take on any name. They don't identify by anything other than a Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. And they begin to meet. And at that particular time, it would have been, uh, they became, as they met and they grew, became known as the Plymouth Brethren. And to this day, if you were to look at church history and the movement behind the Brethren movement, it's the Plymouth Brethren in which they are identified, although these men never took that name. They didn't identify themselves other than a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, from there, John Nelson Darby was a very outspoken person, a very intelligent person, and he established many doctrines that we enjoy today, such as the preeminent return of Christ. What he saw within the scriptures is that there's a secret coming of Christ. You see, up until this time, for the, the main flow of Christendom was Reformed theology. They had the all-millennial point of view in which the church replaces Israel, and that's a spiritual kingdom. They didn't see a distinction between Israel and the church. Darby sees this. And there's many other men that saw it as well, but Darby was able to publicize it. And then he ends up uh, teaching this and bringing it about. And he says, there's a secret coming, a coming where the Lord is going to return for his people, which we've established as the rapture. So you have the rapture, then the actual second coming of Christ where he comes down to this earth. He began to um, look at not only the, 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 the pattern and the principle of the New Testament church, but how the Holy Spirit works in a believer's life. What is the filling of the Holy Spirit? What is the dwelling of the Holy Spirit? Charles Ryrie, uh, uh, a theologian at Dallas Theological Seminary, attributes to the Brethren movement, and particularly Darby, that we are indebted to their searching of the scripture and the establishing of the premillennial pre-millennial doctrines of the working of the Holy Spirit. Up until this time, they didn't understand the fluidness of the Holy Spirit within the local church and how it moves and empowers believers in the gifts. Now, can you imagine at this time that the majority belief is all millennialist and then you come along with this premillennialist view? You have to be very uh, uh, sharp from the scriptures in order to defend it, in which Darby was. As well as William Kelly, uh, the Schofield Study Bible came off, and, and you have such men as uh, W.E. Vine. Um, church history goes on to that these group of believers, and this spread throughout the country, and, and historians or preachers have said that no other small group of that magnitude has impacted the world, such as the 
this brother movement of putting out missionaries, writing books, um, putting out Bible teachers, and, and the influence of this brother movement that went out and influenced people like, like uh, Moody, D.L. Moody of the like, and different people. Their, their reasoning was very simple. Their dependency was on the Lord. People would offer these brother and uh, preachers pay. And as one brother and said, well, how much are you able to pay me? And the church says, well, um, we can give you this much. He goes, well, what if I need this much? Oh, no, we can't, we can't do that. He goes, oh, okay. Well, I'll stay with my uh, current employer because he's able to meet my needs uh, according to his riches. And the Lord provides, whether the, it's this much or this much, he provides their needs. And they were very um, strong in the sense of dependency upon the Lord. And the Lord provided. And there's tremendous men throughout the history, and you can study the history on your own of, of uh, how it went about. And as we come to today, what are we doing today? You know, the history of the church is one thing, but how are we living? How are we practicing today? Are we sending missionaries out? Are we establishing churches? Are we seeing New Testament assembly churches planted around? Are we content within our own building and our own uh, um, comfort zone that we don't go out and seek the Lord? See, the New Testament church practice is one that requires and is dependent upon believers within the assembly to seek the will of God and to exercise their gift and to go out and evangelize and to be empowered. We're not dependent upon a paid staff. We're not dependent upon uh, throwing money at something. We are dependent upon each other to minister to one another's needs. And for men and women to exercise their gifts, whether it's on the platform, whether it's, it's on another level, whatever it might be. And we draw from one another and we encourage one another and we lift up one another. Because we all have a responsibility before the Lord as priests to serve each other, to live for the Lord and to live for him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in closing, I'll share a few other verses here. And the verse that I shared is that the very first one is, But I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceive Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Verse 12. For what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostle of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of life. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. We've got to understand that, that yes, we take a stand on, on, on the person of Christ and, and salvation, but we also got to establish church doctrine because there's individuals that will come from the outside and try to tear apart these doctrines because it ultimately robs God of his glory and cripples and disables the body of Christ and cripples your growth as a Christian. 
What we're going to look at tonight, later on, and if you guys can come out tonight, is, is more so is, uh, is um, how the church functions and get more into the scriptures. I just wanted to give you a little bit of brief history behind it to see how the Lord has drawn the church back to himself. And we at Claremont Bible Chapel want to continue to be an assembly that is drawn to the Lord and to continue to practice New Testament church principles, to be dedicated to them, to be committed to them, and to live them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the Lord is our head and gives us instruction, gives us guidance, we want to carry that out. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we just thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for these men in church history, such as Martin Luther and Darby and these these men that you have worked in their lives and, and drawn them unto themselves. But, Father, the work doesn't stop with them. It continues on with us. Father, we know Satan would love to uh, destroy this assembly, to rob the glory of God from you. That everything we do, we should be to the praise and the glory and honor of you. Father, we just pray that you will help us stay true to the scriptures. Open our eyes. And uh, may we apply the word of God to our lives daily. May we live for you. So ask your blessings upon this assembly. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.